So this is my is theology and doctrines class and each week we'll go through some basic theology, some basic doctrines. Some of them will be controversial in the sense that there's lots of variety, different people teach different things. Others of them will be fairly uh, straightforward kind of stuff. And, uh, but all of it's important things that we would know and understand. And so this morning we're going to talk about the Trinity. And uh, the Trinity is an important topic and it's an, one that would be an area for we talk about heresy, cults. This will be one of the areas of great uh, difference. And so it's an area we need to know what the Bible teaches and, uh, and not arrived at by a different individual's tradition or whatever. So if you have your notes, we'll get rolling on that one. One of the basic doctrines, basic, when I use the word basic, I'm talking about foundational ones that's important to know. Some, of, some doctrines or truths in the Bible are sort of peripheral. They're great if you know about it and, and not super consequential of don't. This is a basic one. And the basic doctrines of the Bible is the Trinity. And so if you ask me the question, where is the Trinity in the Bible? My answer would be, it's not in the Bible. And uh, it was first used by one of the early church fathers, Tertullian, about A.D. 55-200. And it's a word that describes, um, that illustrates what's described in the Bible about God and his existence. So the word Trinity is used a lot but it's not a word that is in the Bible. The term triune God is not used in the Bible either. Um, but we'll see lots of verses that describe the Trinity in the Bible. The definition of the Trinity is, and so this is the uh, historical, what you might call uh, early church definition. There were lots of uh, squabbles and fights, and so they had these councils and to decide what was true, what wasn't true, and what they agreed upon was, was uh, orthodox. And so this is one of the earliest definitions that was given of the Trinity. There's one God who eternally exists as three distinct persons. One God who eternally exists as three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who are each fully and equally God. So that's the definition that's been around for about 2,000 years accepted by the church's orthodox over the years with lots of squabbles over the two parts, one God, three persons, and how that plays out. Um, God is one God. He is the only God. God is one God. He is the only God. There is no other gods besides him. One of the characteristics of God is eternal, that is, without beginning, never created. That is a hard thing for our brain to get around. You go back a thousand years, you go back a million years, you go back a billion years, no matter how far back you go, God exists. God was there before anything else existed because everything's created at some point in time with the exception of God. You will go back far enough and nothing will exist except for God. And so God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are all equally eternal. Um, to you it, has, it was shown that you might know that the Lord, He is God. There is no other. There is no other. Uh, know therefore today 
and take it to your heart that the Lord, he is God in heaven above and on the earth below. There is no other. There is no other. I'm going to give you a fair number of verses. Not that I, you didn't get it on the first one, but I want you to see how this is just a repeated statement over and over and over again in the Bible. God is God. There is no other. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. See now that I am he, and there is no God besides me. It is I who put to death and give life. There is no God besides me. <clears throat> there is no one holy. There is no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there is no one besides you, nor is there any rock like our God. For this reason you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, and there is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. 1 Kings 8, 60, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God, there is no one else. Now, O Lord, our God, deliver us from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone, you alone, Lord, are God. You are it. Isaiah 43, 10, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servants whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe, in, believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there is no God formed, and there will be none after me. I, even I, am the Lord. There is no Savior besides me. <clears throat> Isaiah 44, 6, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, I am the last. There is no God besides me. Verse 5, uh, 45, 5, I am the Lord, there is no other. Besides me there is no God. 45, 21 through 22, declare and set forth your case. Indeed, let them consult together. Who has announced this from of old? Who has long since declared it? Is it not I, the Lord, and there is no other God besides me? I am righteous God and a Savior. There is none except me. <clears throat> there is none, no other, uh, see, 45, 20, is still there. Turn to me, be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Isaiah 46, 9 through 10, remember the former things long past, for I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established, I will accomplish all my good pleasure. First Timothy, move to the New Testament. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. 1 Corinthians 8, 4 through 6, Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and there is no God, there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God. Number four, and you know, God exists in the form of three distinct personalities. God exists in the form of three distinct personalities. And this is seen repeatedly in the Bible. Matthew 28, 19, and 20, Jesus makes this commandment, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. 
A classic passage, after being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened. So in the, in the baptism of Jesus, you have the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all on the scene at the same time in different locations. He saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove, the Holy Spirit coming down from heaven in the form of a dove, and behold, a voice out of the heavens the Father, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So God the Father from heaven speaks, my beloved Son, Jesus in the water getting baptized, the Holy Spirit coming down in the form of a dove. The three persons of the, of the Trinity in the, in the picture together uh, at the same time. Revelations 4, 2 through 3, this is a longer little section here. You've read Revelations 4, but you see it this same scene in heaven. And this is John speaking, the, who wrote Revelation. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. A throne in heaven, we can recognize this is a, a picture of heaven and God. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. So in heaven you see a number of thrones, and one of the individuals sitting on the throne regularly in scenes in heaven is God the Father. So it's always interesting. Okay, let's see. Is this God the Father sitting here in this scene? I'll give you some more verses to help you out on that one. Out from the throne came flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder, and there were seven lamps of the fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. The Holy Spirit pictured as fire. Uh, the word seven has to do with perfect or complete. It's often a reference, a, a number that's referenced with God. <clears throat> and before the throne, there was something like which are the se um, let's see, did I go seven spirits of God? And before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. We sing a song, uh, a worship song about this passage. I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside it and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. It's basically the book of Revelation uh, that's written here on this thing. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? The one on the throne has the book. And an angel says, who can open it? And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders, the lamb standing as if slain. Now, you don't have to be a Bible scholar to figure that one out. Who was that? Jesus. And so he is distinct from the one sitting on the throne. One on the throne uh, describes, uh, he has the book, uh, the Lamb standing slain beside the throne, the seven spirits, or the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, described as fire uh, with the number seven, having seven horns, seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. I got these a little bit out of order here. He came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. He, the Lamb of God, took the book, and when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and all the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, before the Lamb, that's Jesus, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense which are the prayers of the saints. My prayers, your prayers. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you, the Lamb, to take the book and to break its seals. For you were slain, purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe, tongue, and people, and nation. Jumping to verse 11. Of chapter 5, I looked and heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. How many angels are there? 
Myriads of myriads and thousands and thousands. You know what I used to say when I was a kid? Bazillions. Oh, there's a lot of them. Angels. Bazillions. And they're singing a song. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory. We sing that song too as a worship song. It's a good song to sing. They're going to sing it in heaven. We're going to sing it in heaven. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth, under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So there you have on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever. So you three, see three distinct personalities uh, at the same place at the same time. He who overcomes, I will grant to sit down with me. This is Jesus speaking. And there's seven, a message to seven churches in Revelations 2 and 3. And so he makes this statement to the church, that's us. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame, sat down with my Father on his throne. Jesus speaking. I sat down with my Father, God the Father, on his throne. Distinct personalities. And we get to be part of that group so the most fascinating thing about us, the church, is that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit have existed forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever with no beginning. At some point before the foundation of the world, that is before anything existed, a plan was formulated. And the plan, at the very center of the plan, at the core of the plan, the ultimate goal of the plan is the church, the bride of Christ. God made this statement uh, to Adam, who was a type of Jesus. He was a type of Jesus. Jesus is called the second Adam. It's not good for the man to be alone. I will create for him a helpmate, a partner suitable for him. That was a statement made about Adam, and it was also a statement made by the Father concerning Jesus. I will create a helper suitable for him, a, a companion. That was us, the bride of Jesus the bride of Jesus, and he says, we will sit with him for all of eternity in the same way that he sits with the Father. And so the community goes from Father, Son, to Hol and Holy Spirit to Father, Son, and Bride of Christ and Holy Spirit. We get to be included with the Trinity when the wedding of the, of the, of the Son comes and the church and Jesus the great wedding feast, from that point on, it'll be Father, Son, Bride of Christ, and Holy Spirit. That's how special we are as the church. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is important stuff. And so he's saying, pay attention. Each member of the Trinity is equally God, all having the attributes of God, of eternity, omniscience, omnipotence, omnipresence. Each member of the Trinity, equally God. They all are eternal, all-powerful, all all-knowing, omnipresent. All the attributes equally applied to each one. Three distinct persons. In the beginning was the Word, this is talking about Jesus. And the Word was with God. That would be the Father. And the Word was God. Speaking of Jesus, He was God. He was in the beginning. What's the word beginning mean? 
before anything else existed, before anything had been created, not a single atom, uh, not a single molecule, not an angel. At some point, everything was, a, was created. At some point, then there was nothing except the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That word that is used is the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things came into being through Him. Apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. John 5, 18, For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Him, to kill Jesus, because He not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also calling God His own Father, making Himself equal with God, making Himself equal with God the Father. Therefore Jesus answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of Himself unless it is something He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all things that He Himself is doing, and the Father will show Him greater works than these so that you will marvel. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom He wishes. And so Jesus is declaring equality, declaring Himself to be God. For not even the Father judges anyone, but He, gives, he has given all judgment to the Son so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. <clears throat> he who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent me, sent Him. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes Him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment but has passed out of death into life. Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, a third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you shall, and you shall be my witnesses. Jesus speaking here, you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Judea, Samaria, even to the remotest part of the earth. So you have the Holy Spirit giving power to us, uh, doing the work that Jesus has sent us to do. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. I am. Before Abraham, I, Jesus, existed. I, Father, are one. John 10, 30. Verse 37, If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them... Though you do not believe me, believe the works, so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. <clears throat> Acts 20, verse 28. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So the church is functioning in the book of Acts and the Holy Spirit is in the church, blessing the church, controlling the church. To the shepherd, the church of God, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Jesus purchased the, the church with his blood. The Holy Spirit fills the church, guards the church. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? Uh, the Holy Spirit was the shepherd of the church. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And so uh, the book of Acts declares the Holy Spirit to be God, uh, the shepherd of the church. You have not lied. And uh, they said, why have you lied to the Holy Spirit? Uh, You've not lied to men, but to God. Philippians 2, so that, all, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. 
is Lord, to the glory of God the Father, Lord, God. For in him, all this is speaking of Jesus, for in him all the fullness of deity dwells, all the fullness of deity of godliness dwells bodily form, and in him you have been made complete. He is the head over all rule and authority. He is the head over all rule and all authority. 1 Timothy 6.14, that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, speaking of Jesus, who alone possesses immortality, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in an unapproachable light whom no man has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Titus 2.13, looking for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior. God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Hebrews 1.8, but of the Son, he says, your throne, this is the Father speaking to Jesus, your throne, O God, God the Father calls Jesus God, is forever and ever. The righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. Revelations 1.8, I, Jesus speaking, I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord God, who is and was and who is to come, the Almighty. And so again, Jesus is called Lord God Almighty. Revelations 19, and on his throne and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun and cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in midheaven, come, assemble for the great supper of God, the great supper of God. And that was speaking of Jesus. Number six, the Father... Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit are one in purpose, one in unity, one in love, one in essence. The oneness of God and the distinction of the three persons of the Trinity are important. And one of the things that we do, and it's not us that does it, it's those who have written and spoken often uh, have made this confusing. Now, it's, it's deep, it's profound, it's holy, it's incredible, but it is not un, non-understandable. We can get it. The truth of the Trinity, of the oneness of God, is all through the Bible for the purpose of us understanding it and getting it. So the question God is one. What does that mean? There is a heresy called modalism. We'll talk about it in a little bit in your notes. That basically says, and some of you have used this illustration, and it's not a good one. Oh, I know, the Trinity is like water and ice and steam. That's modalism. That's heresy. What it says is... God is one, and he changes modes or forms or appearances. Now he's the Father. Then he changes. Now he's the Son. Then he changes. Now he's the Holy Spirit. And then he changes back. That's not the oneness that the Bible speaks of. It's obvious when Jesus was baptized, the Father in heaven, Jesus being baptized, the Holy Spirit, the scene in heaven with Jesus as the Lamb, God on the throne, and the Holy Spirit being around, pictured in the form of fire, Uh, Three distinct personalities who exist at the same time and who work together. So what does it mean? 
So one of the descriptions of God used most often in the Bible is the statement, God is love. So in the beginning, before there was a person, before there was an angel, before there was a molecule, before there was anything, nothing, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit existed, and at that point, God was love. So the Father loved the Son, and the Son loved the Father, and the Holy Spirit loved the Father, and the Holy Spirit loved the Son, and the three uh, loved each other with a love incomprehensible, unimaginable. It was so great. Their oneness of purpose, their oneness in unity, their oneness in essence was such that they were like one but three. So it's not a mystery in the sense of unknowable. It is profound and deep, the unity that exists between three distinct personalities, but they are three distinct personalities with different roles and different responsibilities, and they have a relationship uh, that differs one from the other. Uh, but their love for each other, their unity, their agreement uh, is like they were one. <clears throat> we have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. That's a description of God's attribute, His essence. He is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in Him. This oneness of the Trinity is infinite in this expression, and they're relating to one another. <clears throat> so the two illustrations that are used of the Trinity in the Bible... One is marriage. Did you know that whatever is important to God, the devil tries to totally mess up, to wreck and mess up the picture? The marriage. A man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one. One. What? That's the same expression that Jesus uses about he and the father. We're one. Marriage is supposed to illustrate the Trinity, and so the devil totally messes it up with gender confusion, uh, with disunity and hate and divorce, and on the list goes, so that the picture is ruined. I mean, how many people would say, describe the Trinity by marriage? Marriage is not much love there on many, not much unity there with many. I mean... In our world today, we can't even figure out which one's the guy and which one's the girl. All of that generated, motivated by the evil one who wants to mess up the picture of the understanding of God. The second illustration is the church. And Jesus makes that declaration in John 17. He says, I pray that they, the church, would be one even as you, Father, and I are one. And the world observing the unity, the oneness of the church will believe that you sent me. And so what does the devil do with the church? At the very beginning, uh, you have Ananias and Sapphira lying to the Holy Spirit and creating disunity and conflict. Uh, it exists in the church rampant. It started, initiated by the devil who wants to wreck the picture. Multiple personalities so much in agreement, so uh, much loving one another that they are like one. 
I and the Father are one, John 10.30, Genesis 2.24. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one. They shall become one. The greatest cost that was paid by God for our salvation was the breaking of this infinite oneness while Jesus hung on the cross. You know, the, uh, the Passion of Christ, the movie came out about the uh, awful uh, way that Jesus died, the whippings, the scourgings, the crucifixion, all the pain that was involved in that. But did you know that the, the pain that he experienced physically on the cross was a, if I can say this not sounding blasphemous, was a piece of cake compared with other pain that he experienced. He became my sin, your sin. He became the sin of every living person. That is, it was put on him, and he felt the guilt, the remorse, the shame of the sin that I committed, you committed. One person experienced it all. I can't imagine that. And then, when that was put on him, God the Father turned his back on Jesus, his own son, and the very first time in all of eternity, their oneness was broken. We can't imagine as Jesus was on the cross and he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because the Father couldn't look at sin and Jesus had become our sin. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have distinct roles. They have distinct roles. So, Patty and I have distinct roles. Um, you kind of see that in Scripture with husbands and wives having different roles. Our culture tries to mess that all up and tries to say, yeah, 50-50 is what works well. Um, they have distinct roles in creating the heavens and the earth. When my dad and I were farming together, uh, we've argued a lot. Uh, dad liked things done his way. I kind of wanted to do it a different way. And so one day we sat down and divided up responsibility. One of the ones that was my dad's was the calves. He raised the calves. And so the agreement was he would do it whatever way he wanted to do it, and I wouldn't tell him what to do. One day, one of the calves died, and I started to say, Dad, you should do it like this. And he says, hold it. Wait a minute. Did I forget something? Did, did, did you get the calves, or did I get the calves? Uh, you did. Okay. If I want to, I'll kill them all. Okay. You do it, whatever you want to do. You know why we did that? was because we got along when he had his responsibility I had mine even in the Trinity you have a distinct role in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth the earth was formless and void and darkness was over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God the Holy Spirit was moving over the surface of the waters you know what the responsibility of the Holy Spirit was in creation did you know when you build a house you have those who laid the foundation and then you have the framers and then you have the electricians and you have the plumbers and the last person is the finished carpenter or maybe the painter. And so the Holy Spirit was the finisher. Uh, fine touches. Same thing is true in the church. 
God said, let us make man in our image. Notice the plural, our, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Colossians, he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created. By him all things were created. I thought God the Father created everything. We created God said, and so they had roles. What was the Father's role in the creation? In Hebrews chapter 11, he spoke. He spoke. He commanded. And then he, Jesus, for by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things, everything, have been created through him and for him. And he created it, and the Holy Spirit came and finished it. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Even now, there's sort of this invisible power that holds atoms together, keeps everything from flying apart. Jesus is very active in holding things together. They have distinct roles in our salvation. So did the Father die on the cross for my sins? No. No. Did the Holy Spirit die on the cross for my sins? No, Jesus did. Jesus did. Who sent the Father? Excuse me, who sent the Son? The Father. Who now is in the church called the temple of the Holy Spirit? Who now resides in me? The Holy Spirit. According to, one, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, the foreknowledge of God the Father... By the way, the foreknowledge of God will explain a lot of things that are confusing about apparent injustice of God and who gets saved and who doesn't. I mean, he knows ahead of time. The foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ. So there you have God the Father, the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ, sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again. Caused us to be born again. What was the... How did that... The Holy Spirit. Jesus said, I will send the Holy Spirit, and he, the Holy Spirit, will convict you, will enlighten you, We'll give sight to your spiritual eyes and we'll draw you. Who, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. But when the fullness of time came, God, God the Father, sent his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that... He might redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. There is an emphasis in the Bible made on the primary location of each member of the Trinity now. So, the at, an attribute of God is Omnipotent, uh, omnipresence, 
It's everywhere. Psalm 139 says you go to the deepest ocean, God is there. You go to the highest heaven, he is there. The farthest star, he is there. But there is an emphasis in the Bible on a primary location of each member of the Trinity. And so we can ask the question, where is God the Father? Father is ruling everything from his throne in heaven. And there are literally dozens and dozens of verses that make this statement. God Almighty is on his throne ruling. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. His throne is in heaven. Micah, this was one of the prophets in the book of Kings, said, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne. All the hosts of heaven standing by on his right and on his left. Revelations 4, 2. Immediately I was in the spirit and behold a throne was standing in heaven, one sitting on the throne. He who was sitting was like a jasper stone, a sardius in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. And as we looked already, this was God the Father. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, ruling with him. That's now. During his life, he was here. Now, he is, a primary location is seated at the right hand of the Father, ruling with him. Luke 22, but from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. From now on, referring to his resurrection, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule, authority, power, and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. The, whole, <clears throat> the Holy Spirit is living inside of every believer and follower of Jesus. So I'm not saying this is the only place that omnipresent, but it's the emphasis, it's the primary place that is emphasized in Scripture. Do you not know that your body, this passage, by the way, is speaking of, of uh, the church. First uh, Corinthians 9 is speaking of our physical body. Sometimes people read those verses and they mix the two up. Uh, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, that you are not your own? Excuse me, First uh, Corinthians 6, that's talking about physical body. First Corinthians 3 is the one that's talking about the church being the temple of the Holy Spirit. John 14, 17, that is the spirit of truth who the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides in you. He abides in you, speaking of the Holy Spirit, and will be with you. Acts 1, 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, even to the remotest part of the earth. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So if you are a believer, you are a temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you right this very minute. Number nine, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have a relationship of authority and submission, even though they are infinitely unified and loving toward one another. Some of the early theologians, church fathers, called this an economic relationship. An economic relationship. That is, their roles with each other in the Trinity is different. 
And it's very observable in the Bible. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So, do you ever, any place in the Bible, see Jesus sending the Father? No. It's always the Father sending the Son. Is that because God the Father is more powerful? They're equally God, equally powerful, equally eternal, equally omniscient, equally omnipotent. Why, then, does the Father send the Son? We don't have a clue. There's no explanation given. But the fact that the Father is the one who sends the Son is stated over 20 times in the Bible has nothing to do with power, it has nothing to do with position, it has nothing to do with eternity, it has nothing to do with anything other than that's just the way it is in their relationship. So if somebody says to me, I don't know why my wives have to be submissive to their husbands, well, do you want to reverse it? Well, maybe we can be 50-50. You know, not even in the Trinity. Is that true? So if the Father is the one who sends the Son and Jesus says, I do nothing except in submission to the Father. In the garden when Jesus is praying to the Father, not my will but yours be done. That wasn't simply as a man, that was eternal. So if they're equal, why would he say I'll be submissive to the Father? You can be equal in every way and still choose to be submissive, still have a relationship that is based on authority and submission demonstrated by the Trinity. I glorified Jesus speaking on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do, which you, Father, have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. They were one in glory. Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him he may give, give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, Jesus speaking, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do, the work you, Father, gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself. Did I go backwards on that? The glory which I had with you before the world was. The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send. Do you ever see the Holy Spirit sending the Father? Not once. The Father will send in my name. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. When the Helper comes, whom I will send, who sent the Holy Spirit? God the Father and the Son. You ever see the Spirit sending the Son? Never. Whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and began to pray, saying, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will but yours be done. Not my will but yours be done. 
uh, an attitude of submission by the Son to the Father. Jesus appears in the Old Testament as the angel of the Lord, the physical manifestation of God. This is a whole lesson all in itself, but um, we'll, so we'll do it fast and maybe do it, pick it up again. You have God appearing as a person, as it were, all through the Old Testament. The pre-incarnate manifestation of Jesus Christ is how it's termed in theology books. The angel of the Lord, often the, this pre-incarnate manifestation, physical manifestation of Christ in the Old Testament, uh, the, the term given is the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. You all know this story. Um, so who was that? Jesus appears in the Old Testament as the angel of the Lord, the physical manifestations of God. That angel of the Lord in the burning bush later declares himself to be God. Father, if you are willing, remove this. Oh, let's see. How, how am I, come on, I'm doing that. Am I pushing the wrong? I'm pushing the wrong button. Going backwards. Sorry about that. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. So Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight while the bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw, the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush. I thought it was the angel of the Lord. So the angel of the Lord initially, then uh, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. He said, do not come near, remove your sandals from your feet for the place in which you are standing is holy ground. That's never said about an angel. He said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. So it begins by saying the angel of the Lord and then he identifies himself. I am the God of, I am the God of. And so when Jesus said to the disciples before Abraham was, I am, he was declaring to the Jews that person that showed up in the Old Testament was me, Jesus. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water and in the wilderness and by the spring on the way uh, to Shur. He said, Hagar, Sarai's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress Sarai or Sarah. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit yourself to her authority. Angel of the Lord, who is that? It's Jesus, physical manifestation of God. Moreover, the angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your descendants so that they will be too many to count. Genesis 16, the angel of the Lord said to her further, Behold, you are with child and you will bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has given heed to your affliction. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone. Everyone's hand will be against him and he will live to the east of his brother's. I'm going to hurry along here. The angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, this is when he's offering up Isaac. He said, here I am. He said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad. Do nothing to him. For, I, for now I know that you fear God and since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. So it starts by saying angel of the Lord. Obviously, it's God speaking. Numbers 
God was angry because he was going, and the angel of the Lord took, hold, took his stand in the way as an adversary against him. Remember Balaam and his donkey, and the angel with the, the sword, that was Jesus, a physical manifestation of God in the Old Testament called the angel of the Lord. Judges Gideon saw that he was the angel of the Lord, and he said, Alas, O Lord God, now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. Again, speaking of the Old Testament physical manifestation of God in the person of Jesus Christ. We are created in the image and likeness of God, the Trinity, so we are created with a very strong need for community and relationship with others. That is a really, 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 really important statement. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are one, one in love, one in unity, one in essence, one in purpose in every way, agreeing together about everything that they do. We're created in the image and likeness of God, the church, individuals, and we crave community, relationship, unity with others, love and, uh, with others. That's because of who we are in the image and likeness of God. We don't really understand some of the ramifications of broken relationships and lack of love and, and lack of relationship until we understand that our very nature is like that of the Trinity. We're designed for community. We cannot achieve any degree of true success on our own without help from others by God's design. Jesus said, I only do what the Father tells me. I only do what the Father shows me. I and the Father are one. The greatest sin that we commit in the sense of who we are is pride. And the definition of pride is I don't need you. I can do it by myself. Uh, that is a Big deal. God is opposed to the proud, gives grace to the humble. The proud is one who says, I don't need you. The humble that says, I need you. We're one. We're in it together. Let us consider how to stimulate one another, stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. That's what we are created by God to be and to do. The church is the body of Christ, the bride of Christ. We are forever seated at the right hand of Jesus. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on his throne. As to the church, he was an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. That's to Adam, but it's also a prophetic statement concerning God's intention for creating a helper for his son Jesus, which is me and you, the church. Our love for Jesus is our love for his bride. Our commitment to Jesus is our commitment to his body. Incredibly heretical statement made today by many. I love Jesus, I just can't stand the church. 
That's like you walking up to me and saying, hey, Pastor D, I really love you, but your wife is really ugly, and I bet you can't cook either. <laughs> you think you're going to go fishing with me? <laughs> so you speak badly, treat badly the church, the bride of Christ, and you are at the center of God's love. Everything Jesus did, he did for the church. He gave his life for the church. He died for the church. He took the sins of the church on himself so that we could live with him forever. And he is in the process of making the church without spot, wrinkle, or blemish. And those who are involved in promoting that and helping that uh, are in a position for great blessings from God. Investing our lifetime money and energy into making our church healthy brings the ultimate of blessings in this life and rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. People will periodically say to me, you are a blessed man. You got a great marriage and you got eight wonderful kids and you got 27 wonderful grandkids and you get to pedal your bicycle all over the country and you have a great ministry. And I can hear them thinking the question they don't really want to ask. Why? Blessings are always conditional never random, never arbitrary. There's always a reason. So if somebody were to say, God's blessed your life a lot, why? I tell you, if I would look at myself and say, why is God blessing me? Number one reason is because I love the church. I love the church, the bride of Christ. I've given my life for the church, the bride of Christ. I'm married, I have kids, but my love for Jesus, my commitment to Christ, demonstrated by my love and commitment and my investment of my life into his church has been the center. Someone say, shouldn't you love your wife more than the church? It depends on how you define the church. If you define the church as a bunch of people, sure, but if you define the church as the eternal bride of Christ, no. And so it's just an attitude kind of thing. It doesn't mean that I've been perfect by any stretch of the imagination. But it does mean that I have this thought, this love, this devotion, this commitment to the church, the bride of Jesus. Um, I see you, but underneath is the bride of Christ. I see you with all the bad habits and the sins and the rudeness and, you know, mutual here. But beneath that is what Jesus died for, gave his life for. What Jesus sees is the church in her beauty and her holiness without spot, wrinkle, or blemish, his eternal companion. And when I invest my life in moving the church toward that direction, I become a major candidate for the blessing of God. I blow it. I do things I shouldn't do. I think things I shouldn't think. I buy things I shouldn't buy. But in the midst of all that, I can have a commitment and a love for the bride of Christ that brings his blessings into my life, into my family, into my kids. According to the grace of God, which was given to me like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation. Paul saying, I started the church at Corinth. I was the church planter. I laid a foundation, and another is building on it. Apollos was the first pastor of the church. They were fighting over who was greatest. So Paul says, I planted the church. Apollos was the first pastor. No man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. 
Now, if any man builds on the foundation, builds on the foundation, builds in the church with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. The day, that's the day we stand before Jesus and give an account of our life. The day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. The fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it, it, what's it? The church. The church. What have you done for your church? He will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. He'll be saved because you're not saved by works. You're saved by grace through faith. But we're going to stand at the judgment seat of Christ and going to receive rewards, boxcars of them, I'm hoping to get. Anybody causing lack of health or disunity in their church is in trouble. I don't know if you know of anybody that's ever done such a thing. 1 Corinthians 3, I've made reference to the two words of body. One is my physical body, one is the church. This is uh, 1 Corinthians 3. 1 Corinthians 6 is the physical body, 1 Corinthians 3 is the church. Do you not know that you, plural, you all are a temple of God? The Spirit of God dwells in you. So the whole context of 1 Corinthians 3, I read to you already about building upon it, receiving reward. This is the verse immediately following that. If any man destroys the temple of God, not talking about your physical body, this was a verse that used, uh, people have used historically to beat up smokers. Uh, nothing to do with your physical body. It's the church talking about here. If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy. That's what you are. You, plural, the church. Now, that's a serious verse there. If anyone destroys, damages the church, the body, the temple of the Holy Spirit, the bride of Christ, that's the opposite of being blessed. The opposite of being blessed we resist, being, we resist being submissive to God-ordained authority because of pride, but even in the Trinity, a relationship of authority and submission was exercised for the sake of unity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, perfect, holy, no sin, eternal, all-powerful, all-knowing, everything, and yet the Father sends the Son, the Son sends the Spirit, the Son died uh, the Father spoke, the Son completed different roles, authority and submission. Why? Because even in the Trinity, authority and submission are required for perfect unity. And so in our pride, I don't want you telling me what to do. Uh, that's why submission is so valued by God as a character trait and one that he blesses to such a great extent. Obey your leaders. And submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. So I can claim that as the pastor. I'm not going to tell you when to fish and where to fish and when to go to bed and how much money to give and when to read the Bible and when to pray. But there is a sort of a general leadership that churches have through the pastor of the church. And unity in the church is often a result of people saying, I'd do it this way, but... I'm not the pastor. Um, and it's a voluntary thing. Uh, there's no real consequence that I can bring into your life. I've often wished I could do what Peter did. You know, just once. 
have somebody fall over dead. <laughs> and everybody to know it was because I made it happen. I mean, would that be clout? Huh? It's never happened, never will. So I don't have any clout other than appeal to that verse. Unity uh, requires. Somebody said, let's have the goal be 80 baptisms this year. And somebody said, yeah, okay, I would do it 100, but we'll do it agree together. We'll pray together in unity so that we'll be blessed and so we'll have power. And uh, let them do this with joy, not with grief. One of the heresies taught concerning the Trinity, I'm going to run out of time so I won't probably get this finished. One of the heresies, um, I'm already out of time. Okay, I think we'll quit right there. We'll go from there next week, and I have some more information to add. We're going to talk about the various heresies, Mormonism, the Jehovah Witnesses, and other groups that have teachings on the Trinity that messes us up. So let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that you created us in your image and in your likeness. I pray that we would understand that we crave unity, we crave love, and we have to give and receive in our relationship with people and also, Lord, in our walk and relationship with you. We love you. Thank you that you've written in your word uh, what you are like and we can understand it and make application of it in our life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.